Welcome to Hello Darkness, a new podcast. My name is Tony Trias, and I am also a producer, co-creator, and co-host of the MLBC podcast, currently available wherever podcasts are heard. Joining me is my co-host and friend, Shannon. Hi, I'm Shannon, and I am a celebrity obituary writer at the Daily Beast and have a background in research. So together we kind of make up a dream team and we look forward to entertaining you with our dark stories and our uh, deep dives into all things kind of macabre. And salacious and ridiculous at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I want to go from highbrow to lowbrow. I mean, this is a podcast that we pretty much do every time we talk on the phone, right? Yeah, I don't think the format is going to change. A no, lot of bands. I mean, I mean, I since the late 80s, we've been like guzzling coffee and just talking this same shit. So here we are doing it for you guys. And tonight we are going to start with our pilot episode about none other than Bijou Phillips. And we're also going to do a little bit of a segue into the Phillips sisters, as in China and Mackenzie. What do you think, Shannon? Is this prescient or is this something that um, is going to be kind of, you know, a hit and run? Uh, I think it's a, a modern classic when we talk about the Phillips sisters, because I don't think anything changes with them. I think, you know, if anything, Mackenzie has sort of turned out to be the, the one that you don't hear from as much in such an unhinged way or mm -hmm. hear about as much, which might be due to recovery, but um, it's surprising given the whole history and where we're going to start and how we're going to go down this uh, roster of really strange things that have happened that kind of, I think, stem from John Phillips, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, absolutely. So my interest in all things Phillips started, um, I think I was a uh, in eighth grade or a freshman in high school watching Joan Rivers late night talk show, which was brilliant. And she had Michelle Phillips on who was plugging her new memoir, California Dreamin'. And she was talking about how sexually reckless they were. Uh, she didn't shy away from talking about how many drugs they did. And uh, also she talked about how she was like the cool mom that, you know, she had condoms in the bathroom for her daughter and um, her daughter could come to her with anything, you know, and that she was going to be a modern kind of mother. And, you know, she didn't really care what anybody thought. So as soon as I heard that, I went to whichever used bookstore I could find. And there were tons, like half price books. Right. And I bought California dreaming for like a dollar. And I read that thing in about an hour. Um, it was chock full of craziness. Uh, I recommend that you go and get that as soon as you can. It's available for like a penny on Amazon, not sponsored. And, um, you know, that was one story, you know, I mean, it was great to read about Mama Cass. It was great to read about uh, Michelle's upbringing. You know, she had a kind of a crazy childhood. Uh, she was best friends with Tamar Hodel, who is the daughter of the man, Dr. Hodel, who was uh, accused of being the Black Dahlia killer 
of all things. <laughs> you know, he lived in that beautiful home. Yeah, no, was- that's another... That's another deep dive. But do you remember on Franklin Avenue in L.A.? That house. Yes, that house. That was Dr. Hodel's house. And um, Michelle would go over there as like a, you know, young child and hang out with her friend Tamar or Tamar. And, um, you know, and that was one thing. I mean, recently when they were doing all the Black Dahlia, you know, documentaries or, you know, the, you know, true crime docs, uh, she would show up as a talking head to talk about her friend. And it was a, quite a horrifying story, which we can get into at some point. And also, you know, um, Michelle was friends with Sue Lyon, who became uh, Stanley Kubrick's Lolita. And she was, you know, like a teen model. And she was encouraged to audition for the film. And her father said, absolutely not. Um, you know, she he was a single father. Her mother had died. And uh, for some reason, and this is kind of unclear her father moved her you know moved the family to mexico city and they lived abroad for many years um and she came back you know and uh she was one of those young teen girls who you know caught the fancy of older men and um eventually hooked up with a much older john phillips who left his wife and daughter Mackenzie to be with michelle uh he took her to new york they started doing um you know, some singing, and they got into a couple of folk singing groups along the vein of um, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, and they met, Den- you know, long story short, but um, they met Denny Doherty and uh, Cass Elliott, who was a waitress at one of these uh, beatnik bars. And they created the Mamas and the Papas after they went to the Virgin Islands and lived there for a long while. Um, I think Mackenzie went with them too. And they lived basically penniless, you know, and who knows what went down. But he what, had had that band beforehand, the Journeyman, yeah, that the had journeyman. done pretty well. And um, I don't think she was part of that, right? It was no, just like, she, oh. she was part of the new Journeyman, which was the re retooled version of that. But, um, you know, as she... Why is he so uncreative? It's like the new Mamas and the Papas and the new Journeyman. Like he just sticks new in there. It's like the new Duran Duran and you put a daughter in there. (laughs) I know. totally. (laughs) And yeah. And, you know, so at this point, um, they come back to the United States and they, along with Mama Cass, they, you know, hook up with uh, Lou Adler, who became their producer, and the Mamas and the Papas were basically like a two-year phenomenon. I mean, they put out their first album, had a bunch of hits, and broke up almost immediately, even though it felt like they were around for a long time. But, you know, they were very prolific, and they kind of created a pop version of folk, which, uh, you know, wasn't really happening at the time. Um, With a lot of harmonies. Yeah, with a lot of harmonies, you know, they kind of made it more accessible. It it wasn't so much like a West Village thing. It was, you know, it was something that was on the radio along with, you know, the Beach Boys and what have you. So, um, yeah, Michelle. One thing I think that needs to be said um, is that Michelle Phillips was underage when she met John. I'm not sure exactly uh, how old she was when they started doing it um so i think you know the trend is going to kind of be very much that and the tone of this entire episode is kind of talking about how predatory he was and Mm -hmm. um 
And I think it starts that what we know kind of starts with Michelle. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I thought it was kind of funny how uh, her father was like vehemently against her auditioning for Lolita, but, you know, cut to a few years later, she was basically a pop star Lolita. You know, I mean, she even kind of looked like that with like her straightened hair and, you know, these like rich hippie clothes. And, um, you know, John looked a lot older, even even in his late 20s or early 30s. And um, yeah, and, you know, Michelle became a surrogate mother to Mackenzie, whose mother kind of sent her off to live with them. And, you know, that's where we get into... Um, Mackenzie became a child actor. Uh, Michelle had China Phillips, who was born in, I think, 1969, uh, around the same time that Mama Cass had her child, uh, Owen Elliott. And, you know, like one of the funny stories in the book is uh, Mama Cass and Michelle taking acid and playing with their kids, which I can't even imagine. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be horrifying. In my family, it'd be horrifying. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, after some time, she divorced John. Um, you know, there were a lot of problems, you know, with them as a couple with the mamas and the papas, you know, she was also having sex with Denny Doherty, who was also in the band. I mean, you know, a lot of it is in their lyrics. Um, and you know, they fought a lot and that's, you know, she even got fired from the band at some point. She showed up to the recording studio and there was another girl who was Lou Adler's girlfriend and they, um, they even like took her out of a photo and added Jill Gibson's, um, you know, superimposed her into the photo. And, you know, Michelle was not very happy, but, you know, I mean, like I said, the band was not sustainable with all these emotions and all these affairs that were happening. And, you know, not to bag on John, although I'm going to bag on John, he did body shame Mama Cass a bunch. And that was something that, um, you know, was consistent and horrible for her to have to endure. So, I mean. Yeah. Mama Cass hated that. You know, there was that one line from the song um, Creek Alley where they're like, no one's getting fat, but Mama Cass. She hated that. And when she became a solo artist, she was intent on losing the Mama Cass uh, moniker. She wanted to be known as Cass Elliot, but you know, the world wouldn't let her forget that. And um, sadly. And that's when she she went to London. Yeah, she went, you know, she was a big star in England, um, you know, still is. Her music, you know, was charting even in the 90s. Um, you know, she was celebrated there and unfortunately died there as well. And she did not choke on a hand She had a massive heart For those attack. that don't know. Well, you know, the story with that is that Alan Carr, who was that crazy producer who... Um, of Greece. Of Greece and uh, Can't Stop the Music and uh, La Cajo Full... Uh, the Broadway musical, he was her manager and he was so scandalous that um, he made up that story and, and leaked it to all the pub, you know, all the publicists and the press. So um, it became international news and, you know, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Because she's more famous for the ham sandwich that didn't happen than anything Mm -hmm. she put out there. So let's, now that we're in like the mid seventies, let's talk about Mackenzie and, um, you know, because she was active in the 70s as a teenager, right? Uh, yeah, my feeling about Mackenzie was, I, well, my first impressions back then were that the press had talked about her heroin addiction. And uh, 
I kind of knew what that was from a, a film we had to watch at school of people shooting up to scare us from away from drugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it was sort of horrifying. And I would look for um, evidence of it when she was on one day at a time. So that's where I mostly knew her from. I didn't know her from American graffiti or any of that. I wasn't that advanced. Yeah, I, well, not saying I was advanced, but I watched everything. And but I you did, were. <laughs> but I, I remember her, you know, being the kid and she was a kid. She was 12 years old when she made American Graffiti and they shot that up in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And I guess I gathered from her book that she went up there unsupervised and that she was not there with a parent or a guardian, you know, and uh, the cast was, you know, in their late teens, early 20s. I mean, I don't know how crazy it got with Cindy Williams and Ron Howard, but, you know, I'm sure that Mackenzie found a way to um, get herself into trouble. But, you know, she had a very um, prolific film career. She was in a film, um, I forget the name, um, with Alan Arkin and Sally Kellerman. She was also in um, the Go Ask Alice TV movie (laughs) that was like an alarmist piece of work. If, if, if I can say anything about it, it was, you know, you remember that book. I mean, it was I'm like, still on uh, Sally Kellerman because I'm picturing her and <laughs> that Alan Arkin movie where he keeps smelling his fingers going into the apartment. What was that called? Oh, wait. Uh, Do you ha- <laughs> he works at a seafood restaurant and he really wants to get laid because he's in middle age and he's like, I don't know, Alan Arkin in his forties. <laughs> Uh, don't <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up because um, well, she's very the, sexy, but she has that gruff voice. It just came to me. The movie that they were in together was Rafferty and the Goldust Twins. And I think he was like some like uh, frustrated middle-aged man who picks up these hitchhikers. And they're Sally Kellerman and a very underage um, Mackenzie Phillips, which, you know, you know, in the 70s, they love to fetishize teenage girls being out in the world on their own, which today would be canceled immediately right i mean it was like oh she's 14 and she's a teen hooker or she's 14 and she's a teenage runaway and you know always falling under the spell of an older man i mean this like genre subgenre whatever it was is just a little disturbing now that we look at it but i mean wouldn't you say in the 70s it was happening everywhere oh yeah i think fetishizing teenagers was um kind of I don't think they even saw it that way. You had Brooke Shields. You had um, all of Jody these Foster. young girls, Jodie Foster, Taxi Driver, like all of that stuff. Even things like um, Susan Sarandon and the Peter Boyle film. Um, what's that film called? Joe. Joe. Yeah, yeah. that's horrifying. <laughs> uh, I don't know that she was underage, but she was definitely young and yeah. definitely part of the counterculture that they were all scared of. Um, so... Just before I go on, the movie mm-hmm. I was referencing is The Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that Alan Arkin and Sally Kellerman decided to work together, on, you know. A lot. Yeah. A lot. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Okay. Mackenzie then uh, became a cast regular on One Day at a Time, which became an immediate hit, made Valerie Bertinelli a star, made Mackenzie a star as well. She during that time was on a roll. I mean, I think she was, um, she was dating a lot of musicians, a lot of music producers, even though she was like, you know, she was like 17 or 18. 14. 
<laughs> no, she was she was older, and also she showed up in more American Graffiti, the uh, the sequel. So she was definitely on a roll, doing really well. But at the same time, she had a secret, or what do you think, not so secret, heroin addiction. She was partying with her dad's friends, like Mick Jagger, Pete Townsend, what have you. I think. Oh, well, that. Well, I think it was not so secret because she kept getting fired from one day at a time. I think it was like five times or something. Uh, Um, So it was out there and it was out there enough for me as a little kid to have come upon it. But um, I think the real tragedy there and what I've kind of take away in some of the reading I've done is it was almost like he got her started on drugs to take away the success she was having or to at least control it. Yeah, um, I, I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, like, also, it was on my radar in a in a, in a weird way. Um, you know, back then, we wouldn't see these things on TV at all. Um, we would, for example, I mean, a lot of the context that I had was seeing, um, like, pap- paparazzi photos from People Magazine or Us Weekly or whatever. But they were always, remember, they were always photos of people in the airport, right? Yeah, totally. And it was I guess they just had people camped out there. Yeah, and you know, I love a glamorous airport shot, you know, and um, sunglasses, lots of luggage, people. (laughs) (laughs) They still do it. And it was always Mackenzie at the airport with her dad, Mackenzie at the airport with like, you know, some rock star, you know. Um But she looked like a little boy in tough skins. Like she looked like she should be in um she always had uh, those like those suits, right? Where it was like a denim jacket and a denim, uh, a denim pantsuit, right? Or a corduroy yeah, pantsuit. Yeah. Always with the wide collars. It was kind of androgynous, and her hair. Um, she always had and the a shag. shag. Yeah, the shag, and um, I mean, I was obsessed with her. I was like, oh my god, she has the best life. She's always traveling. She's always on tour, in quotes, because I mean. I don't know what she was on tour for, but like I said, she was dating a lot of producers and musicians. Um, so yeah. And so- she was in the new mamas and the papas while she was in one day at a time. So that's why I think he kind of let her, I think because of her success in other areas, he wanted mm-hmm. to confine it to something that would benefit him. Right. So in the early 80s, there was the uh, New Mamas and the Papas, which was Denny Doherty from the original lineup, John Phillips. Um, We had Spanky McFarland, who was in a 70s band called Spanky and Our Gang playing, uh, you know, filling in for the Cass Elliott role. And then we had Michelle, not Michelle, we had Mackenzie Phillips singing the Mama Cass parts. I mean, the Mama Michelle parts. So that was a little weird. um, Right? (laughs) uh yeah I mean you don't have to ask it was a little weird but she was going from um being on tour to going to um her her sitcom and she was as uh John Phillips in his book yeah um, he says that she was just exhausted but really he was just doing drugs with her I don't know what age she was when she was in the new mamas and the papas um, I, if you have that, it I might think, be a good time reference. Yeah, she was in the early, it was in the early eighties and she was in her mid twenties. And here's something that I remember distinctly because I have like an insane memory. So Shannon and I grew up in Houston, Texas. And do you remember in town and country, there was that, there was like this 
jazz bar slash lounge that was next to um, that elementary school. And there was a marquee there and it was always like different, like, you know, pretty name, big name artists would perform there. Yes. Um, yes. And it was yeah. like dark and shingled and it yes. looked like kind of dinner theater. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. And I remember like seeing like Tony Bennett or like Patty Page, the singing rage and, you know, Peggy Lee. And, <laughs> you know, I remember this because they would drive me to Memorial Junior High and I would see these, you know, I'd be like, I want to go there. But one time it was um, like a weekend and they were there for three or four days. It was the new mamas and the papas. And I was like, Ooh, I want to see that. <laughs> and it was like around the corner from the windmill dinner theater. Remember that place? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I do remember it because I remember the windmill dinner theater, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's important to note that Mackenzie is saying in her book, that this would be the point where she starts to have sex with her father. That is first a rape and then consensual. Yeah. And a lot of it is, I mean, yeah, not a lot of it, but I think all of it was in, you know, insane drug binges. Um, You know, they would wake up together and she would understand that something had happened, which is horrifying, but it just kept happening. And, um, yeah, in the mid 80s, I think 85, 84, 85 was when uh, they both got arrested in an airport uh, transporting drugs. Uh, they were they were charged with like drug trafficking, even though they I don't think they were dealing. They just had a lot of drugs with them. And it was heroin. And this to me goes back to why he wanted to control where she was. Like, why why would he want his cash cow drug mule to go be on a sitcom when he can have her on tour and basically do whatever he wants with her plus drugs, you know? Um, Because from what it sounded like, you know, she wasn't exactly saying, yes, we're having um, a deep relationship. She was raped on her wedding night by her dad who didn't want her to get married to one of the road crew and the Rolling Stones, Jeff. Yeah. And uh, then she was aware that it happened because she woke up in the middle of a blackout to that. And that is a hundred percent rape. The consensual part I still think is rape because she said she would be passed out and the same thing would happen. She just wouldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So sounds like rape to me. (laughs) I mean, it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, but so this is in the mid eighties. By this time, uh, Bijou Phillips, was born in 1980 to Papa John Phillips and um, Genevieve Waite, who was a South African model who was a product of the swinging London, swinging 60s in London, you know, the whole Carnaby Street thing. Um, You know, she was in a film called Joanna that was directed by... um, the oh, I forget his name, but this the freak show who got lured to Hollywood to make Mario Breckenridge, that um, infamous X-rated movie for 20th Century Fox, which Jean-Bierre White was also in, in an uncredited role. And, um, you know, they were part of this counterculture, and that's where John Phillips met her. They married in 1970, um, and it was um, hello drugs, because they met and they just started having... They had a child immediately, uh, Bijou's older brother, Tamerlane Phillips, Mackenzie's half-brother, and China's half-brother. But yeah, it was like a full-on like collision. They were just doing drugs and behaving badly, correct? 
uh, it, I wasn't there, but yeah, from uh, what I know, it, it, we kind of skipped over his marriage to Michelle. Uh, we touched on it and then we skipped yeah. over China's birth, but and went straight to Biji, which is great because she's insanely interesting. But um, the uh, I think what's kind of important here was that when um, right right on the heels of Bijou's birth, Michelle Phillips had gone to reclaim Tamerlane, who was taken by John and Jean Viev from um, his sister, who was basically fostering him out in California. So they mm-hmm. were arrested for basically child abduction and then Bijou's born while they're awaiting trial. So, um, and they're strung out on drugs. Yeah. So to fill in the blanks, uh, before we go any further, um, Michelle decided to rebrand herself as an actress and she married (laughs) Dennis. Yeah, no, in the early seventies, she married Dennis Dennis Hopper. I mean, yeah, Dennis Hopper for like a second. Yeah, they were married for about a week. And God only knows what happened in that week that made her decide to like divorce him. Um, And then she had very high profile relationships, like live in relationships, um, according to China, with Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson. Uh, She, you know, goes into length about how, you know, these were men in her life as she grew up because her father was her father was absent, you know, she didn't have a relationship with Mackenzie in this, in, you know, at this point, at this point, um, you know, these relationships with her sisters would, um, be reinforced in the eighties, um, as a result of her seeking them out. And also Michelle having to intervene, uh, with all these children that were, um, not being cared for. And not hers, not Not her responsibility. I think it speaks to what a caring person. I mean, I think Michelle is probably flawed in a lot of ways in judgment, um, but we all have bad judgment when it comes to affairs of the heart. So um, no fault there, but she turns out to be a pretty good person. She raises China well. She um, China's the one that's kind of raised like a debutante, even (laughs) though China has some you know, of her own issues down the road, you don't see the kind of just massive, just sexual confusion that you see in the two that were raised by John. No, no. And she was also, uh, you know, we should say it. uh, She was also a surrogate mother to Owen Elliott, who was Mama Cass's uh, orphan daughter. Um, Yeah, it, it, it goes, it, I feel like um, Michelle was a good mother to China. You know, she was a very, open with her. Um, China went through, uh, you know, drug addiction and a wild, you know, she was a wild teenager, but she kind of got it all out of her system by the time she was 18. Uh, she went to rehab, she went into recovery and wrote Hold On as a result of her experiences. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to be said about getting that shit out of your system for you, you know, turn 21. <laughs> yeah, but I just don't think a lot of people can get it out of their system. I think it just be snowballs. Like in the, if you have a like compounding factor, like John Phillips raising you, you're not getting out, you know? And I think China got to see the ugly side of that from a distance by going to visit him. And like you said, uh, the other day when we were talking about it, playing with those syringes, 
you know, and then being in trouble for it because she had no idea what she was doing. Um, you know, that, that creates a huge amount of confusion in a kid. Like you don't know why you're in trouble. You have no idea, you know, no one's saying, I'm sure he didn't say those are daddy's needles that he uses to shoot up, you know, like it's just an emotional response to the thing he loves most in the world. Yeah. And, and also, um, when you say confusion, it must have been really hard for her to not know the full story. The only thing that she felt was that her father didn't want her, you know, and um, that affected her. I'm sure, you know, there, she wrote a couple songs for Wilson Phillips about, you know, wanting to connect with her father. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there was some sort of a reconciliation at some point. I mean, her father and Michelle walked her down the aisle. So, you know, you know, as she says now, you know, it wasn't perfect. She did the best she could, but I, she now realizes he probably did the best he could. So let's segue to uh, Bijou now. Okay. Uh, one thing I just want to respond with, and I don't even know if we're there yet in the conversation, but when uh, Mackenzie's, um, book comes out and she's talking about her relationship with her father, her sexual relationship there. I do think Michelle made a mistake in not believing her because she had quote needles in her arm and quote for 35 years. I don't remember what the actual number of years she said, but it was over 30. And I'm thinking you believe John who is capable of shooting up his own daughter, capable of putting needles in his own arm for decades over a little girl. I just don't see what Mackenzie Phillips has to gain by saying my dad and I had sex. She doesn't need to be famous for that. No, she doesn't. And, you know, she was famous enough as it is. Um, and and already notorious. I mean, we didn't need more of that either. So I just believe her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, she has been on the road to recovery for many years, uh, a lot of false starts, but yeah, she, you know, had nothing to gain in rehabbing her career and her public image by putting out a book, you know, revealing these horrible family secrets that, you know, the Phillips sisters have had to deal with, you know, for a long time. I mean, these these girls all knew about what happened to Mackenzie for about, I think, 10 to 15 years before it was, it was published in the book. Right. We know Bijou did because Bijou says she was told that I bet, I think it was 11. She was told when she was 11 by Mackenzie. My feeling about that is that Mackenzie had to get that secret off her chest and she chose probably to, (laughs) to do it to a young child, which is not, maybe appropriate, but appropriate isn't really how this family operates. Like nobody's saying, oh, well, you know, I I think uh, we're going to talk about boundaries and what you talk about when you're 11 is different than what you talk about when you're, you know, 25. I don't think they know the difference. I mean, if you get to Bijou and um, she's acting like the healthy one, and she's banging Evan Dondo at 15. So I don't think people have any clue about boundaries in this family. And it's, you know, I think, okay, China's maybe just tone deaf, but the rest of them just don't have boundaries. <laughs> yeah, no, I, after reading um, Michelle's book, it was 
imperative for me to go to the Kendall Branch Library on Memorial Drive and get Papa John's book, which I did. And it was huge. I mean, it's one of those books that was like, I think, 900 pages. And I'm like, really, sir? What are you writing about? But he's one of those people. And I remember, I distinctly remember after finishing it, like this guy does not take responsibility for everything. He was like almost as if he were a victim of circumstance, you know, and he, um, you know, everything he did had a reason, um, you know, but he's a genius songwriter because he wrote all the Mamas and the Papas songs. And he also wrote, if you're going to San Francisco, wear flowers in your hair. He wrote Kokomo for the Beach Boys. So, you know, he couldn't be faulted. He was just an artistic genius. And I'm like, no, there is responsibility you need to take for the way you treated your wives, uh, the way you treated your children, and the way you treat yourself. You know, he had a a liver transplant, and he was drinking afterward with a brand new liver. You know, like he just didn't, he couldn't be held accountable. Um, I think also, you know, there's there's the craziness in the book where you know you have Mick Jagger showing up when Bijou's an infant and he and Jerry Hall take custody of her and the Hamptons and refuse to give her back because John and his wife are Jean Viev are so strung out at this point that they can't be trusted to take care of their child. But then Bijou screams the whole time. And then we get to, um, okay, you can have your kid back because we can't handle her. Um, those kinds of things in the book, you know, later on you find out, from Mackenzie's book that um, he completely let Mick Jagger have sex with his daughter cheating on Jerry Hall. And I think it was in their bed, right? Wasn't it in Mick and Jerry's bed? And, you know, while I just think you can't save one daughter and fuck the other. No, you don't. You can't. cannot do that. I mean, yeah, so... (laughs) So yeah, so uh, Bijou was born in 1980 in the midst of all this like flagrant drug use. Um, she was born with small kidneys. You know, she was not a healthy baby. Um, and She's also an admitted crack baby. Yeah, yeah, she did say that. I mean, she interview. says it. Yeah, and um, you know, at this point, her brother was living with Michelle, but um, Jean-Biev had Bijou and um, I don't think, I think she was like an accident and uh, you know, they just, yeah, it's just, um, it's just unfortunate that like, you know, the mother was doing drugs while, while this baby was conceived. It's in John's book. Like we don't even have to dance around it. They were doing, I think she was strung out on Dilaudid at the Uh. time when she was having Mm -hmm. Bijou. Um, and after. So BG was a baby who was not taken care of. Even lover or hater, the girl was not cared for. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jean-Biev was always um, known as a kleptomaniac. (laughs) (laughs) She stole Jerry Hall's earring. And uh, who was the other lady? The, Uh, The... it was a, a clothing designer from the late seventies and eighties, and um, the leopard print lady. Yeah, she stole all the clothes, and they found them when they were cleaning out uh, their Hamptons house to help them out with the kids. They were like unboxing a whole bunch of stuff, and they were unboxing a lot of um, other people's stuff. 
And then Jerry Hall had just received an earring from Mick Jagger to commemorate them moving in together. And that went missing too. And so they keep trying to confront her, but she goes into hysterics. Jean Biev goes into hysterics anytime somebody blames her for anything, even though it's there and everybody knows it. So well, Mick is kind of dancing around. I, yeah, I'd like to have uh, my wife's earring back, but you know. Uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall when Jerry Hall with that fake Texas accent is screaming at everybody about her stuff and the kid. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she's Jerry so Hall. tall. I know. I will take your child. <laughs> Sounds like Nancy Grace. <laughs> Flipping that hair, you know, like. I'm Jerry Hall. Um, but God, she was gorgeous, though. Ah, uh, she still is. You know, God bless her. She just divorced Rupert Murdoch and is just swimming. I know. Um, I mean, why, why marry him? She had the Mick Jagger money. She mm-hmm. didn't need it. She didn't need it. So yeah, in the eighties, um, Bijou was, um, in quotes, a foster child. She went to live with a family in Connecticut. Um, the Dairy family, D-E-R-R-Y. That's their name. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, she had a, you know, I guess they were getting money from her parents, uh, you know, so she could live with them because, you know, that's. I, she had rich person foster care. She didn't have group home foster care. She was, like you said, riding horses and, you know, yeah, she, being she involved. Was, she was an equestrian, um, you know, and she was pretty good at it. You know, she was riding horses from a young age and, you know, the whole dressage circuit in, you know, the tri-state area, which is pretty well healed. Also, um, you know, I, she did say in one interview that um, she would see her mother periodically. Her mother would come and see her. And, um, you know, this kind of broke my heart that, you know, Bijou would scream and cry when her mother would leave and they would have to pry her away from the door. I mean, you know, I, I can recall feeling like that. that. Yeah, I can totally get that. And, you know, um, that had to have, you know, a, a big effect on her when she's, you know, not sure where she belongs, you know, and, um, and these adults are kind of just coming in and out of her life, you know, and, you know, and her sisters are on opposite coasts and I'm much older. Yeah, and much older, yeah. you know. Um, China was a teenager, and you know, uh, Mackenzie was in her twenties, and you know, spending more time with their father than Bijou and China were. Unfortunately, the it one thing that I thought was crazy and odd is that she divorced her parents and then went to live on her own, rather than going and staying with the foster parents that were taking care of her. I don't know the story behind that, but I feel like. If you're doing well riding horses, you don't really need to go live on Fifth Avenue and hang out with Paris Hilton. Right. So, yeah, let's go back to that. Um, there is a, um interview magazine cover story with Christina Ricci when she was 12 years old. And it's kind of, if you look at it, it's inappropriate. It's uh, a male model who's in his late teens, early 20s, uh, Bijou and Christina Ricci dressed as baby dolls. and um, Shot by Bruce Weber. Shot by Bruce Weber, who is the one who, quote unquote, discovered um, Bijou as a model. Not sure how that connection happened, but it's still inappropriate. Um, so they, they were part of this um, Ford models crew that was, um, they were, you know, 
child models. It was Lindsay Lohan. It was Bijou Phillips. It was uh, Misha Barton. It was um, Scarlett Johansson and Christina Ricci. All these girls, if you Google it, they, they all did like, you know, Gap Kids ads or, um, you know, they were children. I mean, it was, you know, child modeling. And we I all- think Christina Ricci was monitored a little better, but we may have to do a deep dive into her. <laughs> Oh, no, I think she was. I mean, she she was, you know, I, I read that interview magazine cover story, and it was basically her mother would not leave her sight, you know, and I don't think she she had any inappropriate um, situations happen to her because she was, you know, constantly monitored. And she was also, you know, working in A-list films. And, um, you know, I guess she had a team behind her. Bijou was not that lucky. I mean, she um, became a teen model at 12 and not just like a teen model, but she was doing adult shoots, right? I mean, she was working with Ellen Von Unworth and who's an amazing photographer, but they were doing very risque, um, you know, photos. Also, she was, I think, 14 when she did that um, controversial Calvin Klein uh, ad campaign. You can just see her cotton panties under the skirt, and they've actually scrubbed the internet from the videos of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can't get them. Um, I mean, I'm sure you could on some other country site, and we could use our VPNs if we really had to. But I think we remember that they were very much the aesthetic of the Fiona, Fiona Apple video, um, Criminal. Was yeah, it Criminal. It was- yeah, yeah, criminal. It was heroin chic. It was, um, you know, seventies smut porn. It was. It um, was child trafficking and wood paneling. Exactly with and, stuffed animals. No, and I, I <laughs> and remember, a creepy guy interviewing. I remember uh, those commercials would air nonstop on MTV in the late nineties, and um, it was kind of like the next evolution after CK1, which was uh, borrowing heavily from the Andy Warhol factory um, milieu, if you will. And um, it just took it to the next level and it was disgusting. I mean, I thought it was kind of chic back then, but I didn't know any better. And I also thought that, you know, um, oh, what was that? Uh, Well, I mean, the fact that they've been scrubbed because the FBI went after um, Calvin Klein for and Bruce Weber child. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, so, that, that was, that was a very like sketchy time in the modeling world. This was after the supermodels kind of like, you know, became corporations. And then we had these waves and, uh, blah, blah, blah. But I remember specifically models like teen models, like James King, who now has come forth and said like she was hooked on heroin the entire time she was a teen model and put in these really dangerous situations in New York and Bridget Hall and girls like that and um, Bijou was part of that next generation Um, and she you know admittedly quit modeling because she thought it was sleazy and and creepy you know she's like it's like I'm you know if we get a lot of this from her um 1999 um, Howard Stern interview where she's very forthcoming and very honest. And she says like, no, you know, I was put in situations that I did not want to be in and I was smart enough to get out of that. But at the same time, she was 15 years old living on her own in Manhattan with no supervision. Also as um, consumers, like you said, you thought they were chic because you didn't know better. 
imagine being younger. We're older than Bijou. So um, she, she couldn't have known better, even though, yes, we think she's kind of awful now, but, you know, just putting all of this into context of what she becomes later. um, I think she was, you know, exploited very early on. And I know that she was extremely upset that her sister had revealed um, the incest to her at such a young age. But in some ways, she says it made her hate her father and not want to have a relationship with him, which could have saved her from her father, if you really think about it. Like, we don't know what would have happened if she stayed in that house. We know he's capable of doing it once. He's capable of doing it multiple times. And Bijou seems like she was just as confused about love and uh, boundaries and relationships and um, how those things, you know, should should go, yeah. you know, for lack of a better word. Now, it needs to be said that um, Bijou lived with a housekeeper in her um, apartment on Fifth Avenue downtown, but I think the housekeeper just came over once a week. What do you think? I think she was there to clean. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't see the housekeeper having even, I mean, if you've divorced your parents and you're living on, I guess, Mm -hmm. some money that your parents have set aside, if they even had any more, I guess they had enough. And you're also working. She says she had to go to work to make money. Yeah. That may be true, but somehow she had some getting started money somewhere. Um, Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know. What came first, her divorce from her parents or the work with like Bruce Weber and people like that? Yeah, I, I think it all happened around the same time. Um, also, it needs to be said that she did start to have a, more of a relationship with her sisters. Uh, she was in she was one of the bridesmaids at China Phillips wedding in the early 90s. Uh, she actually looked really cute. She was dressed in a tuxedo and uh, had a little, you know, boy cut. And, um, you know, she was um, she was close with Mackenzie, who informed her at 13 years old about their father um and you know this kind of you know she lost her innocence if you will um hearing about this um you know and and she kind of was off to the races after that you know she uh became part of uh you know the toxic um so you know they call her you know sometimes they call her she's referred to as a socialite in new york i mean i don't know if that's the right word but she was you know um the same age and partying with paris and nikki hilton who were you know run you know they were uh sneaking out of their parents apartment in the waldorf astoria to go to these clubs and hook up with older men um i mean Bijou was also hanging out with other, you know, luminary children like Sean Lennon and uh, Max Leroy, whose father owned um, the Tavern on the Green. So, you know, these were very privileged um, young teenagers with a lot of money and uh, they they just were tearing up the town. But I mean... I think, you know, after we had um, the big six supermodels, you had uh, the socialites, you know, and that whole New York scene was kind of just as big. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they weren't necessarily walking runways. They weren't necessarily not, but they were seen as like, it's kind of a pre-Kardashians, like famous for nothing but your family name kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think... 
that's something that was exclusive to kind of that early 2000s period was this idea of socialites, but it was specifically New York. You didn't have LA socialites. They could travel, but yeah, yeah, no, like like for example, Nicole Richie would travel to New York to be, you know, insane, yeah, and hang out with these people. Um, then, um, you know, they were also considered muses for these like young designers, you know, like Mark Jacobs, Todd Oldham, blah blah blah. But it was, you know. Yeah like, yeah, like you say, it was like famous for not really doing anything. And, you know, um, so Bijou was modeling and, um, and then she got out of that. And then at around 17, uh, she decided to go into the family business and record an album, which was produced by Jerry Harrison of uh, The Talking Heads. She also worked with, um, you know, it was, I think... I remember reading that uh, she was she got involved into like a music workshop program, kind of similar to like the Sundance Lab, and that's how her uh, album was produced. Um, but according to her in Howard Stern interview, the um, you know the the record label went out of business, and she wasn't able to. Um, she wasn't able to promote the album, so it didn't do very well, but she did get to tour with the Lilith Fair, and then she self-admittedly became a recreational lesbian, uh, and then... And, <laughs> I mean, she was promoted a little bit by word of mouth through Courtney Love, who we all know is just as bananas, but has impeccable taste. Yes, yes. I mean, I will, <laughs> I will say that I... I have, and I still do love Bijou's album. I'd rather eat glass, which is a direct, you know, it's her way of saying I'd rather eat glass and to be a model again. But I, I mean, I think it's really good. I mean, she has a great voice, you know, just like her two sisters do. They, you know, they did inherit artistry. Um, however, a lot of it is misguided, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I, with Bijou or with Michelle or China, like, I think the inheritance is uh, she's inherited some other things too, oh, um, yeah. like the non-accountability and, you know, things like that. Like she's definitely mm-hmm. a passive person that's just happened. Things are just happening to her. Like she has no agency in cutting off somebody's finger with a cigar cutter. She has yeah. no, you know, that just kind of like, just kind of came about and it was funny. haha, you know, and, you know, disfiguring people is funny. Bullying people is funny. And she's never saying, you know, I'm actually deeply sorry. She's like, I don't remember a lot from that time. So if I hurt you, this is referring to Danny. Yeah. Is his name Danny or Daniel? Yeah. Um, uh, from the movie Bully or Mean Girls or wherever you want yeah, to go yeah, with that. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so we um, we also have to say that, you know, she was 15 years old and in this whirlwind and she started dating Evan Dando, who is a disgusting human being. And that's my opinion. <laughs> and uh, he was he was kind of no like, argument. <laughs> he was kind of like a. a, a alternative um, i would say he was a poor man's anthony kiedis yeah in a way because he had that like long stupid hair that you know had like a keratin treatment and then um he was kind of a flash for a second he was like the biggest thing in the world and then his addiction got the best of him and took hold and yeah he kind of resides in the where are they now except on twitter file 
in the mid '90s, he kind of became like an alternative um, teen idol to like you know confused boys and um, you know alternative girls. You know, I mean, he was the Lemonheads. I was like, oh my god, I love them, and I there's nothing to love. I mean, they were a derivative. I, once again, the word alternative band, um, you know, playing clubs and, you know, girls screaming and, oh my God, his hair is so hot. He's so gorgeous. Blah, blah. And, um, you know, it was kind of a coup for her to date him and he de-virginized her. And this is, you know, admitted by China, by um, Bijou. And he um, pretty much de- just dumped her, you know, and, um, and yeah, like he you broke say, her heart. He broke you know, her heart. She, you know? She's very clear about like not understanding the dynamic there. You know. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're young, um, and you you're in love, you're in love with your crush, and he, yeah, just kind of pumps and dumps you. And what are you gonna do? You know. So, yeah, that was that was kind of like after that she was the hit and run girl. I mean, she was dating and and breaking up with people. You know, guys, girls, and it was um. It was very volatile at the time. And that's when she, after the album didn't work out and she was no longer in um, the modeling world, she becomes an actress. A playmate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. A playmate. So, uh, yeah, she turned 18 and she did a spread for Playboy with uh, Ellen Von Unworth. Pictures are actually really sexy, but I mean... Because she does pubes. Like, it was the time when everybody didn't, and she was like, I am not going to wax the floors. Yeah, yeah. So it was like 70s, and it was uh, really crazy looking for the time, because everybody in Playboy was like the runway strip, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, she that was the reason she was on the Howard Stern show and, um, you know, to publicize that. And she was, you know, yeah, she was saying how her dad was just not happy about that. But, um, uh, but then again, um, like, I mean, was he sober (laughs) and sort of regretting things? I mean, if you really think about it, Mackenzie Phillips had to have been in her thirties by the time she told, um, Bijou about her uh, affair with their father. So she's 21 years older than Bijou. So she's like 32 telling like an 11 to 13 year old. Sometimes it's 11. Sometimes it's 13. Depends where you look, but that this is happening. Yeah. um, So yeah, I just don't understand, um, you know, how her father is, commenting about her being in Playboy and, and uh, you know, with especially with his history with Mackenzie, the whole thing is, is really icky. Um, so yeah, Bijou becomes an actress. And um, during this time, she's dating Sean Lennon. Um, you know, she's in several love triangles with Sean and Max Leroy and other, you know, luminary, uh, quote unquote, socialites. Um, you know, she's kind of like cutting a path through New York City, you know, running around like a crazy person, um, you know, doing independent films. Uh, she was in black and white, um, basically playing herself. Uh, you know, she ended up in um, Hostel Part Two and Bully, which uh, famously was directed by um, Larry Clark, another inappropriate uh, father figure. And he, um, 
you know, it was a it was a very sexually explicit film, uh, very violent about a true crime story where a bunch of kids kill the, um, a guy who bullied them. Uh, during the filming, it came out that she was abusive to the entire cast, uh, most notably uh, Daniel Frances, who is um, who was famously also in uh, Mean Girls. Um, this is another one of those situations where she said, I didn't know it happened. I was um, on drugs, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, another actress that she worked with around that time, uh, Heather Matarazzo, had the same experience. And, um, you know, I think with Heather, he was um, asking her or she was asking her to break her sobriety and bullying her about that. Something so fragile and new for a person who, you know, obviously wanted to keep it. So it's it's really sad, like when you read any of the Heather accounts. Yeah. Yeah. I I will say and during all these film appearances, um, Bijou always kind of stands out. Um, I thought probably the best work she did was as one of the groupies and almost famous. Um, I mean, she was once again playing herself. Knew how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was a period piece and it was her, Anna Paquin, Kate Hudson. And, um, you know, they, you know, I guess when you have a good director, you you can kind of transcend... um, and I not- feel like we could get super dishy on Bijou and then we have to one of the we're at an hour and what that means is there's got to be a Bijou part two where we get to the Masterson stuff and yeah, her, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. We're not going to get to that in 15 minutes. No, we're not going to get to that. I mean, I kind of wanted to talk about her being a scream queen, but, you know, I mean, there's really not. I do, too. I want to talk about like the early days, you know, like (laughs) to sit there a little bit. And we kind of talked a lot about the family history, whereas Mm -hmm. we can just. Bishu was sort of the reason for this episode. Exactly. I mean, we wanted to give you a little bit of background and I feel like we more than did that. Delivered. yeah, I mean, I in the early 2000s, I was like a notorious consumer of anything Bijou Phillips. So anytime she did another B movie, I was like trying to find it somewhere, you know. Um, and you were always comparing me to your um, little muses because you had your own too. So it was like, if this one's skinny or if this one has big boobs, it's like, I can't be all things Tony. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, you know, and, and I, I thought Bijou was just going to be the next big thing until she um, became a Scientologist. I mean, she met Danny Masterson in as early as 2004, and that that was that. I mean, after that, she kind of slowed down her career and, um, you know, became a mother. She also became ill uh, from kidney disease and, um, you know, which we'll get into that in the next episode. But yeah, this this was a, a very prolific time for her from 1999 until about 2009. Even having weird run-ins with Aaliyah, where they're all in a big bed, um, the rapper Aaliyah, you know, uh, with who's in that bed? Uh, Jay Z, um, or Diddy. she just in, yeah, uh, out in the Hamptons, which was surprising to me that she ran with that crew too. But you said that probably was from the filming of Black and White. Yeah, during the filming of Black and White, um, Bijou and um, Robert Downey Jr. and Brooke Shields and um, Elijah Wood, you know, all starred in this film. And they, uh, the director, J. 
James Toback, who is also very problematic and has been canceled since. I mean, everyone in this story seems to have been canceled um, at one point. But uh, he encouraged them to immerse themselves into hip-hop culture of the early 2000s in New York uh, because the film was going to be improvised. So uh, they kind of lived this life. And uh, Bijou and all these people were invited to uh, P. Diddy's famous white party that um, anybody and everybody that was in that scene. Hanging out back then. Hanging out back then. I mean, I think it's... It's funny that she's now been attached to some of the Aaliyah conspiracy theories surrounding her death. So, um, you know, I don't think there's any truth there. I think she was just maybe either researching, being friends with people for a time before their lives are cut short. But then that's a whole nother crew of people like Rashida Jones and, you know, running in those circles, you know, because they they were. You know, and they kind of had some overlap. They just weren't the socialites or whatever. Rashida and her sister Kidada were uh, close with um, Elijah Wood and Aaliyah and uh, the Hilton sisters. And, you know, they've, you know, I just, I love how Rashida Jones is like, like a, comes across as very responsible. And, you know, I mean, you know, she's grown up, but, you know, during that time they were all over the place and, um, and Bijou was kind of like a ringleader because, you know, wherever she went, trouble followed. So we will. She get was in- a tabloid darling for that mm-hmm. whole time. And then it abruptly ends with Masterson and Scientology. Exactly. Which we will uh, get into a little bit more of um, her volatile years and then uh, her involvement with Danny Masterson and where she is now. But um, I think that this is a good place to end the first episode of Hello Darkness. What do you think, Shannon? I think that's great. I look forward to talking more about her and uh, going to some of the more recent events that like our younger audience members can kind of weigh in on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all very, um, you know, fact and, and, you know, factual and informative. But I think that in the next episode, we can kind of like... Um, cut it a little bit more loose and just and just talk about how this makes us feel and how it makes the rest of the world feel because now Bijou is like the queen of the Daily Mail. <laughs> she will be for some time. I mean one of one of one of the recent headlines was the curse of the Phillips sisters, which is a little like heavy handed, but you know, I mean if that's where they want to go with that that's where they can go with that you know there's plenty of fodder as we have I mean the curse is actually John Yeah 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 that's the only curse is that you know they had this dysfunctional father that they're still trying to figure out what he means to them and um it's really simple I mean he just was an absent father who didn't know what he was doing and uh probably tried to be a father in a way that is not very traditional or very nurturing. And with that, I will say good night, darkness. <laughs> <laughs> good night. Okay, we can say that. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, we're happy that we are working on this together and we can't wait to bring you some more of this like insane. Lighthearted comedy. This has <laughs> been kind of the heavy episode, but we're yeah. actually pretty um, frank and light people. Yeah, this has been kind of an info dump. Like, yeah. here's a timeline. I mean, we're fun, but you wouldn't know that from like you know our uh, diatribe today. But well, you know, <laughs> we'll 
we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> but thank you for listening. And, um, and yeah, I hope that you guys listen to some uh, future episodes. We are available anywhere that podcasts are found. Um, so look for us there. And we'll talk to you guys next time on Hello Darkness. <laughs>